Section 14 of Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. Section 14. Chapter 67 through 72. Chapter 67 About this time, a young fellow named Francesco, the son of a smith, Matteo, left Bandinello's employment and inquired whether I would give him work. I agreed and sent him to retouch my Medusa, which had been new, cast in bronze. After a fortnight, he mentioned that he had been speaking with his master, that is, Bandinello, who told him if I cared to make a marble statue, he would give me a fine block of stone. I replied at once, Tell him I accept his offer. Perhaps this marble will prove a stumbling block to him, for he keeps on provoking me, and does not bear in mind the great peril he ran upon the piazza of San Domenico. Tell him I will have the marble by all means. I never speak about him, and the beast is perpetually causing me annoyance. I verily believe you came to work here at his orders for the mere purpose of spying upon me. Go then, and tell him I insist on having the marble, even against his will. See that you do not come back without it. Chapter 68 Many days had elapsed during which I had not shown my face in the palace, when the fancy took me to go there one morning, just as the duke was finishing his dinner. From what I heard, His Excellency had been talking of me that morning, commending me highly, and in particular, praising my skill in setting jewels. Therefore, when the Duchess saw me, she called for me by Messer Sforza, and on my presenting myself to Her Most Illustrious Excellency, she asked me to set a little point diamond in a ring saying she wished always to wear it. At the same time, she gave me the measure and the stone, which was worth about a hundred crowns, begging me to be quick about the work. Upon this, the duke began speaking to the duchess and said, There is no doubt that Benvenuto was formerly without his peer in this art, but now that he has abandoned it, I believe it will be too much trouble for him to make a little ring of the sort you want. I pray you, therefore, not to importune him about this trifle, which would be no trifle to him owing to his want of practice. I thanked the Duke for his kind words, but begged him to let me render this trifling service to the Duchess. Then I took the ring in hand and finished it within a few days. It was meant for the little finger. Accordingly, I fashioned four tiny children in the round and four masks, which figures composed the hoop. I also found room for some enameled fruits and connecting links, so that the stone and setting went uncommonly well together. Then I took it to the Duchess, who told me graciously that I had produced a very fine piece, and that she would remember me. She afterwards sent the ring as a present to King Philip, and from that time forward kept charging me with commissions, so kindly, however, that I did my best to serve her, although I saw but very little of her money. God knows I had great need of that, for I was eager to finish my Perseus, and had engaged some journeymen whom I paid out of my own purse. 
I now began to show myself more often than I had been recently been doing. Chapter 69 It happened on one feast day that I went to the palace after dinner, and when I reached the clock-room I saw the door of the wardrobe standing open. As I drew nigh it, the duke called me, and after a friendly greeting said, You are welcome. Look at that box which has been sent me by my lord Stefano of Palestrina. Open it, and let us see what it contains. When I had opened the box, I cried to the duke. The duke was highly delighted to find the statue so beautiful, and put me a multitude of questions, saying, Tell me, Benvenuto, minutely, in what consists the skill of this old master, which so excites your admiration? I then attempted, as well as I was able, to explain the beauty of workmanship, the consummate science, and the rare manner displayed by the fragment. I spoke long upon these topics, and with the greater pleasure because I saw that His Excellency was deeply interested. Chapter 70 While I was thus pleasantly engaged in entertaining the Duke, a page happened to leave the wardrobe, and at the same moment Bandinello entered. When the Duke saw him, his countenance contracted, and he asked him dryly, What are you about here? Bandinello, without answering, cast a glance upon the box where the statue lay uncovered. Then, breaking into one of his malignant laughs and wagging his head, he turned to the Duke and said, My lord, this exactly illustrates the truth of what I have so often told your Excellency. You must know that the ancients were wholly ignorant of anatomy, and therefore their works abound in mistakes. I kept silence, and paid no heed to what he was saying. Nay, indeed, I had turned my back on him. But when the brute had brought his disagreeable babble to an end, the duke exclaimed, O Benvenuto, this is the exact opposite of what you were just now demonstrating with so many excellent arguments. Come and speak a word in defense of the statue. In reply to this appeal, so kindly made me by the duke, I spoke as follows. My lord, your most illustrious excellency must please to know that Bacchio Bandinello is made up of everything bad, and thus has he ever been. Therefore, whatever he looks at, be the thing superlatively excellent, becomes in his ungracious eyes as bad as can be. I, who incline to the good only, discern the truth with purer sense. Consequently, what I told your excellency about this lovely statue is mere simple truth, whereas what Bandinello said is but a portion of the evil out of which he is composed. The duke listened with much amusement, but Bandinello writhed and made the most ugly faces, his face itself being by nature hideous beyond measure, which could be imagined by the mind of man. The duke at this point moved away and proceeded through some ground-floor rooms, while Bandinello followed. The chamberlains twitched me by the mantle and sent me after. So we all attended the duke until he reached a certain chamber, where he seated himself, with Bandinello and me standing at his right hand and his left. I kept silence, and the gentlemen of His Excellency's suite looked hard at Bandinello, tittering among themselves about the speech I had made in the room above. So then Bandinello again began to chatter and cried out, Prince, when I uncovered my Hercules and Cacus, I verily believe a hundred sonnets were written on me, 
full of the worst abuse which could be invented by the ignorant rabble. I rejoined, Prince, when Michel Agnolo Buonarroti displayed his sacristy to view, with so many fine statues in it, the men of talent in our admirable school of Florence, always appreciative of truth and goodness, published more than a hundred sonnets, each vying with his neighbor to extol these masterpieces to the skies. So then, just as Bandinello's work deserved all the evil which, he tells us, was then said about it, Bonarotti's deserved the enthusiastic praise which was bestowed upon it. These words of mine made Bandinello burst with fury. He turned on me and cried, And you, what have you got to say against my work? I will tell you if you have the patience to hear me out. Go along then, he replied. The duke and his attendants prepared themselves to listen. I began and opened my oration thus. You must know that it pains me to point out the faults of your statue. I shall not, however, utter my own sentiments, but shall recapitulate what our most virtuous school of Florence says about it. The brutal fellow kept making disagreeable remarks and gesticulating with his hands and feet until he enraged me so that I began again and spoke far more rudely than I should otherwise have done if he had behaved with decency. Well then, this virtuous school says that if one were to shave the hair of your Hercules, there would be not skull enough left to hold his brain. It says that it is impossible to distinguish whether his features are those of a man or of something between a lion and an ox. The face, too, is turned away from the action of the figure, and is so badly set upon the neck, with such poverty of art and so ill a grace, that nothing worse was ever seen. His sprawling shoulders are like the two pommels of an ass's pack-saddle. His breasts and all the muscles of the body are not portrayed from a man, but from a big sack full of melons, set upright against a wall. The loins seem to be modelled from a bag of lanky pumpkins. Nobody can tell how his two legs are attached to that vile trunk. It is impossible to say on which leg he stands, or which he uses to exert his strength. Nor does he seem to be resting upon both, as sculptors who know something of their art have occasionally set the figure. It is obvious that the body is leaning forward more than one-third of a cubit, which alone is the greatest and most insupportable fault committed by vulgar, commonplace pretenders. Concerning the arms, they say that these are both stretched out without one touch of grace or one real spark of artistic talents, just as if you had never seen a naked model. Again, the right leg of Hercules and that of Cacus have got one mass of flesh between them, so that if they were to be separated, not only one of them but both together, would be left without a calf at the point where they are touching. They say, too, that Hercules has one of his feet underground, while the other seems to be resting on hot coals. Chapter 71 The fellow could not stand quiet to hear the damning errors of his cacos in their turn enumerated. For one thing I was telling the truth. For another, I was unmasking him to the duke and all the people present, who showed by face and gesture first their surprise and next their conviction that what I said was true. All at once he burst out, Ah, you slanderous tongue! Why don't you speak about my design? I retorted, 
A good draughtsman can never produce bad works. Therefore I am inclined to believe that your drawing is no better than your statue's. When he saw the amused expression on the duke's face and the cutting gestures of the bystanders, he let his insolence get the better of him and turned to me with that most hideous face of his, screaming aloud, Oh, hold your tongue, you ugly! At these words the duke frowned, and the others pursed their lips up and looked with knitted brows toward him. The horrible affront half maddened me with fury, but in a moment I recovered presence of mind enough to turn it off with a jest. You madman, you exceed the bounds of decency. Yet would to God that I understood so noble an art as you allude to. They say that Jove used it with Ganymede in paradise, and here upon this earth it is practiced by some of the greatest emperors and kings. I, however, am but a poor humble creature, who neither have the power nor the intelligence to perplex my wits with anything so admirable. When I had finished this speech, the duke and his attendants could control themselves no longer, but broke into such shouts of laughter that one never heard the like. You must know, gentle readers, that though I put on this appearance of pleasantry, my heart was bursting in my body to think that a fellow, the foulest villain who ever breathed, should have dared in the presence of so great a prince to cast an insult of that atrocious nature in my teeth. But you must also know that he insulted the duke and not me. For had I not stood in that august presence, I should have felled him dead to earth. When the dirty, stupid scoundrel observed that those gentlemen kept on laughing, he tried to change the subject and divert them from deriding him. So he began as follows. This fellow Benvenuto goes about boasting that I have promised him a piece of marble. I took him up at once. What? Did you not send to tell me by your journeyman Francesco that if I wished to work in marble you would give me a block? I accepted it and mean to have it. He retorted. Be very well assured that you will never get it. Still smarting as I was under the calumnious insults he had flung at me, I lost my self-control, forgot I was in the presence of the duke, and called out in a storm of fury, I swear to you that if you do not send the marble to my house, you had better look out for another world, for if you stay upon this earth I will most certainly rip the wind out of your carcass. Then, suddenly awaking to the fact that I was standing in the presence of so great a duke, I turned submissively to his excellency and said, My lord, one fool makes a hundred. The follies of this man have blinded me for a moment to the glory of your most illustrious excellency and to myself. I humbly crave your pardon. Then the duke said to Bandinello, Is it true that you promised him the marble? He replied that it was true. Upon this the duke addressed me, Go to the opera, and choose a piece according to your taste. I demurred that the man had promised to send it home to me. The words that passed between us were awful, and I refused to take the stone in any other way. Next morning a piece of marble was brought to my house. On asking who had sent it, they told me it was Bandinello, and that this was the very block which he had promised. Chapter 72 I had it brought at once into my studio, and began to chisel it. While I was rough-hewing the block, I made a model. But my eagerness to work in marble was so strong that I had not patience to finish the model as correctly as this art demands. 
I soon noticed that the stone rang false beneath my strokes, which made me oftentimes repent commencing on it. Yet I got what I could out of the piece, that is, the Apollo and Hyacinth, which may still be seen and finished in my workshop. While I was thus engaged, the Duke came to my house, and often said to me, Leave your bronze a while, and let me watch you working on the marble. Then I took chisel and mallet, and went at it blithely. He asked about the model I had made for my statue, to which I answered, Duke, this marble is all cracked, but I shall carve something from it in spite of that. Therefore I have not been able to settle the model, but shall go on doing the best I can. His Excellency sent to Rome post-haste for a block of Greek marble, in order that I might restore his antique Ganymede, which was the cause of that dispute with Bandinello. When it arrived, I thought it a sin to cut it up for the head and arms and other bits wanting in the Ganymede, so I provided myself with another piece of stone, and reserved the Greek marble for a Narcissus which I modelled on a small scale in wax. I found that the block had two holes, penetrating to the depth of a quarter of a cubit, and two good inches wide. This led me to choose the attitude which may be noticed in my statue, avoiding the holes and keeping my figure free from them. But rain had fallen scores of years upon the stone, filtering so deeply from the holes into its substance that the marble was decayed. Of this I had full proof at the time of a great inundation of the Arno, when the river rose to the height of more than a cubit and a half in my workshop. Now the Narcissus stood upon a square of wood, and the water overturned it, causing the statue to break in two above the breasts. I had to join the pieces, and in order that the line of breakage might not be observed, I wreathed that garland of flowers round it which may still be seen upon the bosom. I went on working at the surface, employing some hours before sunrise, or now and then on feast days, so as not to lose the time I needed for my Perseus. It so happened on one of those mornings, while I was still getting some little chisels into trim to work on the Narcissus, that a very fine splinter of steel flew into my right eye, and embedded itself so deeply in the pupil that it could not be extracted. I thought for certain I must lose the sight of that eye. After some days, I sent for Maestro Raffaello de Pili, the surgeon, who obtained a couple of live pigeons, and, placing me upon my back across a table, took the birds and opened a large vein they have beneath the wing, so that the blood gushed out into my eye. I felt immediately relieved, and in the space of two days the splinter came away, and I remained with my eyesight greatly improved. Against the feast of Santa Lucia, which came around in three days, I made a golden eye out of a French crown, and had it presented at her shrine by one of my six nieces, daughters of my sister Liparata. The girl was ten years of age, and in her company I returned thanks to God and Santa Lucia. For some while afterwards I did not work at the Narcissus, but pushed my Perseus forward under all the difficulties I have described. It was my purpose to finish it, and then to bid farewell to Florence. End of section 14